This morning's text is found in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles, or in the Pew Bible in front of you. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. One of the hymns that we love to sing during Advent is a hymn that connects the coming of Christ into history for the salvation of sinners with the coming of Christ into our hearts for the salvation of this sinner. Let me read you the first stanza. Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me, but in Bethlehem's home there was found no room for thy holy nativity. O come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there is room in my heart for thee. And I was thinking, what should we focus on during the four Advent messages this year? And the question that came back to me again and again was, how do you make room in your heart for Christ? How do you prepare the heart to receive Christ? And it's a very basic question, isn't it? It's basic for any of you who don't have Christ dwelling in your heart. This morning, because it says in Romans 8, 9, he who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ and not to belong to Christ is the greatest tragedy of all, both in this life and in the life to come. And so it's a rock bottom issue of how the heart becomes ready to receive Christ for who he really is. And it's a tremendously important issue for those of us who do have Christ dwelling in our hearts, because we need to rehearse again and again what happened to us when Christ came. We need to know how that happened. I've been struck in the past several days with how Paul does not tire of telling the churches to whom he writes what happened to them to make them Christians. For example... Romans, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. First Corinthians, 
Consider your call, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. God chose what is foolish in the world. Second Corinthians, you are a letter not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Galatians, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Ephesians, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. And on and on he goes, recounting to believers what happened to them. Telling them how they got saved. What transpired in the transaction between God and man that made them Christians. And so it's very important, I think, for those of us who already have Christ dwelling within to remember how our hearts were prepared to receive Christ. As I've pondered this for myself, four benefits have made themselves real to me. One, I have come to uh, have my affections for Christ heightened and intensified and I have felt so much more endearment for the Holy Spirit because of his role in that transaction. And I have felt a deeper and firmer security in the distinguishing love of God, which was manifest to me in drawing me to Christ. And I have felt more desirous and more able to welcome and urge others to to receive Christ because of having meditated on my own having received him. And what was it that made my heart ready to do that? So I want to ask two questions in the four weeks that we have now leading up to Christmas. And the two questions are, how do we make room for Christ in our hearts? Or, secondly, asking it a different way, how are our hearts prepared to receive Christ for who he really is. Now, today's answer comes in this text that Kenny has read in Matthew 16, 13 to 20. You'll notice that Jesus asks in verse 15, who do you say that I am? So I'm going to infer from this text that One thing that has to happen for the heart to be prepared to receive Christ is that we have to recognize Jesus for who he is. We have to be able to answer Jesus' question truly and gladly. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and know what we mean when we say that. Now, let me illustrate for you why it's so crucial that we receive Christ for who he really is. Suppose this week somebody comes to your door, rings your doorbell, and you open the door, and lo and behold, it's Billy Graham. And you recognize him, of course. And you kind of fumble for words and open the door wide and welcome him in and put him in the best chair and run to the kitchen and try to come up with your best china and some good pastry that's maybe been frozen. You pop it in the microwave and you spread it out before him and you make a big to-do. And then all of a sudden, you look again, and it's not Billy Graham. And this person asks you, why all this? Uh, why are you making such an affair out of my coming here? And you say, well, I thought you were Billy Graham. 
Now, what have you, what have you done to your guest? You've insulted him. He thought maybe it was for him. That's exactly what we do when we receive Christ into our hearts, not knowing who he really is. He is not glorified by our ignorance. He is not honored by our blindness. In order to receive Christ in a way that honors him and saves, you have to recognize him for who he is. So that when you welcome him, you're welcoming him because it's really him and you've really seen him and agreed that he's honorable and worthy. In this text, Jesus says, who do you say that I am, Peter? Or disciples, and Peter answers for them all, you are the Christ, that is, you are the Messiah, the promise fulfiller, the satisfier of our hearts, and the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right, you're blessed for having seen that. Now the question becomes, and this is the main question of the morning, what had happened to the heart of Peter to prepare that heart to see that Jesus and recognize him for who he is. What must precede the recognition of Christ for who he is so that we see him? And Jesus answers that question in verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the answer to our question is, in order to receive Jesus for who he is, we must recognize him for who he is. And in order to recognize him for who he is, we must experience something more than flesh and blood. Namely, a revelation from God the Father concerning the Son. I want you to make this very personal now this morning. I don't want this to be an academic exercise. So I want you all right now to ask, when did that happen to me? What was it like when God the Father revealed to me the sonship and the messiahship of Jesus? Now, if I, have a, if I had a microphone and I would walk among you and I would let you answer that question, I think most of you would say, I don't know, I don't know what to say. I, I've never... Uh, I've never even thought of my conversion in those terms. A revelation from the Father. Now, don't panic if, I, if that's right. Because every person 
who has ever been converted was converted on the basis of very limited knowledge of what was happening. Very limited. Very limited. Everybody. No exception. Some will say, I just prayed to to receive Christ. Another would say, I believed on Jesus. Another would say, I was crucified with Christ and now I'm walking by faith. Another might say, I confessed Jesus as Lord and believed in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Another might say, I was born again. And none of them might be familiar with the other's terminology. And not be able to explain what happened in that other person's language. But it's real. Every person who has ever been converted was converted on the basis of very limited knowledge. It takes a lifetime to grasp the fullness of the miracle of what happened when you were converted. You don't understand it fully yet. I could give you category after category from Scripture and ask you to explain your conversion in those categories and you wouldn't be able to do it because you don't know yet. The Bible's too big. It's too full. There's so much more yet to learn about what happened to us way back then. So what I want to happen in the rest of this message is two things. I want everybody in this room, when you hear me unpacking conversion in terms of verse 17, to test yourself to see whether it's happened or not. And secondly, if it has happened, to let your faith simmer and ripen and deepen into a zeal for God like you've never had before. All right? So this is for everybody, those on the outside as well as those on the inside. There are two questions I want to ask to unpack verse 17. Number one, what is Jesus denying when he says, Peter, it was not flesh and blood that revealed this to you when you confessed me as Christ and son of the living God? And second question, what is Jesus affirming when he says, it was my father in heaven who revealed this to you? So let's take those one at a time. First, what is Jesus denying in verse 17 when he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Flesh and blood has not been the key that has unlocked the mystery of my person as Messiah and Son of God. That's not what has happened. Now, to understand what he means, we need to ask what in the world does flesh and blood mean? We don't usually use that phrase very often today. And it's not hard to find out what it means. It's only used four other times in the New Testament. I'll read them to you, and you can tell me what they mean. 1 Corinthians 15:50, speaking of the resurrection body, I tell you this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Well, now there, evidently, flesh and blood stands for the ordinary human physical existence, which won't inherit the kingdom until it's transformed by the twinkling of an eye into a spiritual body, right? What we are by nature as flesh and blood, ordinary created human existence, will not inherit heaven. There'll have to be a change, 
A continuity so that we can recognize each other, I believe. But just like they could recognize Jesus, nevertheless, he had a new spiritual body after the resurrection. And so will we. And so flesh and blood is just our ordinary fleshly human existence. Second text, Galatians 1, 15 to 17. Paul speaking of his own conversion. And here, this is an amazing parallel to Matthew 16, 17. And I think that maybe Paul was using the language of Jesus to assert, I'm an apostle just like Peter. See if you don't think so. He says, when he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me through his grace was pleased to, here it comes, reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. Now, what does he mean? He means I didn't have to check this revelation out with anybody. I met the living Lord on the Damascus Road. No human being needs to confirm this for me. So flesh and blood means people. Period. Third, Ephesians 6.12. We are not contending against flesh and blood, but against powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. What does that mean? That means that flesh and blood is non-supernatural stuff. Anything in the world that tries to oppose you and doesn't have Satan in it and demons in it is just flesh and blood. Just ordinary people, you know, pulpits, rugs, food, jobs, just, just flesh and blood. Non-supernatural. Finally, Hebrews 2.14 Concerning Jesus' incarnation, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature. In other words, he became a human. Now, we know what flesh and blood is. Flesh and blood is simply humanity, ordinary human existence, created, finite, limited human existence. And Jesus is saying to Peter, what you are as a man by virtue of your first birth will never discover my identity. John 3, you remember that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Could have said that which is born of the flesh is flesh and blood. It's just Human and humans will not see the kingdom of God. No one will see the kingdom of God unless he be born again and now have spirit as well as flesh. Something supernatural as well as natural. What we are in this room apart from a supernatural work of God is flesh and blood. And we cannot, by virtue of that, see Christ for who he is. Paul taught the same thing, didn't he, in 1 Corinthians 2.14? I'll read you the verse. See if you can decide what phrase in this verse is the same as flesh and blood. The natural man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You got it? Natural man. He could have said, flesh and blood does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul is saying that no human being, by virtue of powers resident within himself, what he has by being born of a father and a mother, will ever see Jesus, ever. 
flesh and blood has not, cannot reveal my Messiahship and my sonship to anybody. Why not? Well, Paul says it's because we regard divine things as stupid, folly. Let me bring it into the Christmas setting. I think he would say this. By nature, as flesh and blood, we recoil at the humiliating implications of Christmas. And therefore, we redesign Christmas. Christmas is humiliating because it means I'm cursed and need a savior. Christmas means that I am lost and I need a shepherd. It means I'm sick and I need a physician. It means I'm a rebel and I need a reconciler. And it means I'm dirty and I need a purifier. Now, in that message about Christmas is heralded the natural man or flesh and blood hates it so much that it becomes blind to it to protect itself from it. And then redesigns Christmas in a secular way to cope with it. Why does the the human heart not run to the light when the light comes into the world? Jesus told us why in John 3.19. He said, light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. They loved darkness. The spiritual blindness of no person in the world is against his will. Say that differently. No person in the world is spiritually blind against his will. Have you got that now? Put that in your computer in processing what you hear from this pulpit. No person in the world is spiritually blind against his will. Spiritual blindness is hate of the light. Spiritual blindness is the recoiling from the light and the loving and the embracing of the dark. And loving and embracing is an act of the will. No one is blind against his will. The will is corrupt in blindness. If any of you or I have seen the Son for who He is, something more than flesh and blood has been at work in our lives. Amen? What is it? Question number two. Matthew 16:17 My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Now the question is how 
Because all of us want to affirm what the Bible says. We want to say, yes, yes. But how? What was it like? I'm not sure what to point to in my experience. I know I'm saved. I believe Jesus. I trust Him. I love Him. I make every effort to obey. I confess when I sin. But I can't remember that ever happening to me. So I want to ask with you, what's it? What is it? What was it like for Peter and for us? Was it in a dream where God Almighty, the Father, comes to you and says, when you wake up, read the word and what you see there of Christ, believe it. It's true. Or was it perhaps that you were reading a verse about the divinity of Christ and it thundered outside? Whoa, that's a sign that this is true. He is God. Or many other such external constraints upon your will. If so, if that's what you think it means or has happened to you, be very suspicious of this. Why? Because it doesn't honor Christ. If Christ comes and knocks on your door and you open the door and you look at Him and you don't see Billy Graham or anybody, just an ordinary man, nobody attractive, Nobody marvelous, nobody beautiful, nobody divine, nobody good enough to rip you away from your sins, nobody great to fall on your face and kiss his feet. But then the phone rings and you pick up the phone and it says, hello, this is God Almighty, the father. That's my son at your door. Let him in. And you, okay, okay. And you go, come on in, Jesus. You may come into my life. Sure. I don't want to go to hell. I fear for so many people who think they're saved. You can't be saved if that's the way you welcome Jesus into your life. If you opened the door and you saw nothing beautiful, nothing glorious, nothing attractive, nothing matchless, nothing to free you from your sins... But under someone's constraint, you said, well, this is what you're supposed to do. You go to church and you call him God and you pray to receive him. You're not saved. Christ is not honored like that. There's no glory for Christ in that. I don't think that's the way. God revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Son of God. How did he do it then? Well, we could go all over the texts of uh, Matthew and look at all kinds of examples. Let me just choose one and we'll, we'll draw this to a close. If you want to look at it with me, it's chapter 11, verses 2 to 6. Now, here's the question I'm posing. Where is another illustration where Jesus expects somebody to recognize him for who he is. And how does he expect that person to recognize him? And then we'll get insight into how God reveals the son. All right. The person is John the Baptist. Where is he? 
He's in jail. And he's starting to doubt. Don't condemn yourself for doubting. Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest of men. The greatest man born of woman was doubting in his last hours. However, he didn't sink into despair. He sent disciples to Jesus and he asks him, are you he who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, what's that question mean? That question means, are you the Messiah? Now, what has Jesus just told Peter about how to find out if he's the Messiah? Get a revelation from God, right? So what Jesus says to these disciples is, you go back, tell John to get down on his knees and ask for a revelation from God, right? Wrong. This is very important. How does Jesus help this man in desperate torment about whether he is the Christ? Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. Now, if you can only recognize the Son for who He really is by a revelation from the Father, why does Jesus answer this man's desperate doubting question by sending a human report of the deeds and words of Jesus? Here's the answer, as far as I can see. The indispensable work of God the Father in the life of John, Peter, you, and me. The indispensable revealing work of God the Father is not, I repeat, is not an adding to us of information that we can't see in Jesus. Rather, the indispensable work of God the Father revealing the Son is the opening of the eyes of our heart to see Him for who He really is at the door. So that when we welcome Him, He's honored because we have fallen on our face. We have kissed His feet. We've seen His glory. And when He sits on our couch, it's not because of any authoritative constraint over the phone. It's because He's real. He's God. He's glorious. He's my treasure. He satisfies. Have you been converted? Has God the Father Almighty revealed the Son to you? How does it happen? It happens along the lines of the written, inspired Word of God. Suppose I go to Rick and talk to him about a night experience he's had. And he tells me, I was poring over the Word of God last night. And I couldn't see anything beautiful. It was just blank. Jesus didn't look like He was attractive. He didn't seem divine to me. I saw problems everywhere. And then, John, God spoke to me. And He said, it's true, whether you see it or not. Believe it. Whether you see it as beautiful, whether Jesus is attractive, whether He's strong, whether He's mighty, whether He's wise, whether He's glorious, just believe it. No! 
one is converted like that. Christ gets no honor like that. You can't glorify the Son by looking at Him with a blank face and saying, I can't see anything wonderful in you, but God said I'm supposed to believe, and I will. That is not conversion. That's not salvation. Salvation is when Rick is pouring over the Bible. And all of a sudden, the Father moves upon his heart, opens the eyes of his soul, so that seeing he sees and hearing he hears. And what he beholds in the work and the word of Jesus explodes with beauty, explodes with power, explodes with evidencing reality, and he falls on his desk in worship of the Son, not under any constraint at all, but ravished by the beauty of the Savior. That is conversion and nothing less. John writes to a church and says, those who go on in sin have never seen the Son. So what should you do this Advent season to prepare to receive Christ for who He really is? Two simple things. And they are simple. The Gospel is wonderfully simple. Number one, look. Look. Look at Jesus. Consider Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Fix your sights on Jesus. Open the Bible to Luke and read it again and again and again and again this Advent season. Read a Gospel a day if you have to, if you think you're outside Christ. Expose yourself to Jesus. And then secondly, pray. Open my eyes, Father, that I might behold the beauty of Christ. Because God loves to open the eyes of people who are looking at Jesus. Because then, when their eyes are opened, they see Him and He gets the glory. They get the salvation. And this could be the greatest Advent season of your life. I want to close with a prayer. And I want you to sing the prayer with me. It's number 486. We'll sing one verse. Open my eyes. 486, the first verse. Pray it as you sing it. Shall we stand?